In a former profession, I received a six-figure bonus from a business interest that I was pursuing. I was a relatively new Christian and was not actively involved in the church. Perhaps superstitiously, I felt it incumbent to tithe my bonus to a charity. It was a substantial sum, and I took to heart Jesus' words in Matthew 6, which reads, So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. I therefore donated anonymously, routing my donation through a secondary foundation so that my gift could not be identified with me. My non-recurring windfall turned in part into a homeless shelter's windfall. However, as unintended consequences would have it, the organization took their windfall as a sign of special, continuing favor. My secrecy did not allow them to recognize it as a one-time gift. Instead, the homeless shelter decided not to reduce its large debt, as I thought it obviously would, but instead took the full amount and opened a new operating program. That new program would require additional funding in new years at the same amount as my one-time gift. Within two short years of my gift, something I never intended happened. The organization became functionally bankrupt. Its debt exceeded its assets, and its cash flow couldn't fund its current liabilities. Now, there were other prior financial and management problems at the shelter that brought on the bankruptcy, but my unexpected windfall hastened the collapse by enticing management to undertake more program offerings than for which it could generate funding and contracts. Because I felt responsible, I and some others stepped in with renewed effort, giving and lending that rolled back the bankruptcy so that the shelter, a decade later, is now on firm footing. However, I learned an important lesson about windfalls. They seduce us into thinking there is an angel behind their unmerited favor. Windfalls tempt us to thinking that the universe is not only especially benign, but that we can count on this unearned favor each and every season. I knew that this wasn't the case with my windfall, but my friends at the shelter didn't know that about my tithe. They accepted the gift that came with no warning and with no conditions and assumed it was a signal of an angel donor who was with them every year. Note what today's parable from Jesus does not say. That the wealth of the barn raiser is somehow ill-gotten or illegitimate. The windfall harvest is from God. What this parable should note and does note is that the windfall is unexpected. 
and that the fool meets it with an attitude of poverty. What should I do? He asks. This question should lead to the reflection on the nature of wealth and the source of its bounty. And such a reflection would lead perhaps to the understanding that windfalls are tests of our character. The landowner in the parable asks the, at the bounty of his harvest, what should I do? As if confronted with a dilemma, as if confronted with the perplexity of poverty, he then makes a foolish plan to tear down his barns and build bigger ones in order to take his ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Such a plan is not concerned with practical matters and fails to give thanks to God as the provider of this windfall or to tithe from the harvest's first fruits to God's favor. The landowner is a fool with a big barn attitude. He is a foolish steward of the gifts that God gives. As Psalm 24 notes, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. Church Father Cyril of Alexandria notes that it is the nature of fools to, quote, not look to the future. The fool does not raise his eyes to God. He does not count it worth his while to gain for the mind those treasures that are above in heaven. He does not cherish love for the poor or desire the esteem it gains. He does not sympathize with the suffering. It gives him no pain nor awakens his pity. Windfalls are dangerous to our moral fiber. They divert us from our normal concern with practical affairs and the needs of others, and instead seduce us into reckless living, such as the rich farmer, a humble first century peasant calls, dare calls fool in today's parable. The fool is one who wants to live as if struggle only pertains to others. Yet struggle seems to be a part of God's plan, and struggle, even pain, is necessary for human growth and progress. Seeking to avoid that pain, to eat, drink, and be merry, ethically diverts us from Micah's pronouncement, the prophet Micah, to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. This ceaseless enjoyment of eating and drinking celebrates our own supposed success and mistakes divine providence for our personal shrewdness and supposed merit. Isaiah, in chapter 5, claims how even legitimately gotten wealth, accompanied only by a sense of pleasure-seeking and no sense of stewardship or fair distribution, corrupts, leading one to foolishness and woe. Isaiah says, ah, which means woe. Ah, woe, you who join house to house, who add field to field until there is room for no one but you and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. 
The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield a mere ephah. Ah, woe, you who rise early in the morning in pursuit of strong drink, who linger in the evening to be inflamed by wine, whose feast consists of lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine, but do, who do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Several studies that I've seen on PBS recently have demonstrated that consummated feelings of wealth make us worse people. Our tendency, our urges to lie, cheat, and steal increases the more wealthy we are. Experiments that I saw on PBS, the NewsHour showed that, that, that rig, experiments that rig amassing even monopoly play money show antisocial behavioral increases in the favored player. Antisocial behavior increases in the favored player who gets, who's rigged, whose experiment rigs them getting more monopoly play money. The story of recently convicted insider traders Raj Rajaratnam and Rajat Gupta note their lust for zeros to add to the magnitude of their net worth. Their fascination with the really big money the really big barns that would display an aristocratic profile to others and show others that they had really arrived. We see this in the recent movie version of The Great Gatsby, which demonstrates these Aravists, these newly arrived people's great wealth that leads them to sumptuous displays. In F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, it is the wealthy of fictional West Egg who play the rest of us for fools. Fitzgerald describes the big barn old money Tom and Daisy Buchanan as, quote, careless people who smashed up things and retreated back into their money of their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made, unquote. Of that consequence, another recent experiment de demonstrates that reckless driving is associated with the owners of luxury car brands. From Fitzgerald, we might learn how the hedonistic rich are forfeit of their souls. They are not living spirits, struggling and progressing in practicality and life-affirming sociality, but may be decaying and spoiled fruit romping in their frozen illusions of paradise, driving drunk in smash-ups, and having their lawyers bail them out. What do our checkbook and credit card statements say about us? It's not what a person has, but what a person does with his or her possessions. For Luke's Jesus, the demand of discipleship is not about the perfect response or giving away one's last dollar, but the spiritual orientation to others' needs and the practical responses. Disciples act on the idea that all of life belongs to God and the wealth to sustain it comes from God's providence.
How then do we exercise our stewardship over our time, talents, influence, and resources? Today's parable is not proposing that eating, resting, drinking, and merriness are not without a place in our lives. But a life solely devoted is not human. It is static and antisocial. It is unjust as it diverts us from our appointed tasks to live beneficially for others. It is unwise in the sense of the book of Proverbs, the sayings found therein. Some 70 times the book of Proverbs speaks of fools. I don't hear Proverbs preached much, so allow me to note some positive wisdom to which Jesus likely refers against the folly illustrated in today's parable. From Proverbs 13, the redemption of a man's soul is in his riches. Again in 13, wealth hastily gotten will dwindle, but those who gather little by little will increase it. From Proverbs 27, anyone who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and anyone who takes care of a master will be honored. And again, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, nor are crowned for all generations. And from Proverbs 28, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but one who turns a blind eye will get many a curse. This parable I submit challenges us to understand that without practical struggle and our struggle with our feelings of wealth, we are due to wax, wane, and even lose our souls. Where in our lives are we in a rut? Where in our lives do we choose comforts and familiar celebration to authentic growth and progress in stewardship? There's both a corporate and an individual ethical message in this parable. For me personally, I know God is patient, but not enabling of my spiritual lethargy and illusions. And God rocks my world when I fall asleep in some material or spiritual comfort. Do I think I know what spirit and church is all about? Well, maybe some. But there is always more. As many facets to the spirit and to the church as there are sands in the sea, stars in the heaven, and people on the earth. When we shrink back from stewarding wisely our time, talent, resources, and influence, we get stuck in our illusions of kingdom come, of living large in Zion. Our parable makes it clear that God will not have it so. As I mentioned at the outset, I have learned the unintended consequences of my windfall gift to the homeless shelter that hastened pain and struggle there. It was too large and too tempting, and it tested the prudence of leadership. It was a test. It wasn't one I intended, but it was a test. All of us in that organization learned something about windfalls from that gift. 
I learned that communication is necessary to convey intention for such a gift, an intention to prudently reduce debt. The shelter and the people there learned to think through expansion decisions practically in a way that did not presume upon the familiarity and beneficence of donors. I'm not sure if any of us is inoculated, though, from the temptation of windfalls even now. Whether ours or others' great wealth, great wealth is best, best approached with a hearty and vigilant skepticism. And this message may even guide our politics and our society as we confront the explosion of inordinately great wealth in certain people. As disciples, we are to focus on our windfall of gladness from our redeemed relationship with God. What makes you glad? Is it something inert like material goods or big barns or spoiling or rusting like hoarded commodities? Or is it something that is alive and keeps you and others alive and thriving, like relationships, family, the gift of life, and livelihood to others. Frederick Beekner's quote from the cover of today's bulletin highlights what our stewardship cons consists. Beekner writes, The place where God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Our big barns, rightly constructed, are spiritual silos of happiness and gladness in what God has given us. Our storehouses are the surplus that may be applied to the hungers of the world, both spiritual and material. Greed and self-centeredness divides, love gathers. The character of the wealthy, self-centered soul encompasses those tragic, foolish actions that devolve from the misuse of resources. Gathering provisions into big barn to eat, drink, and be merry cuts off one one from social relations and social obligations. It is the ultimate in self-love and suggests hatred of others. It does not gather in with others. It does not gather in with the world's deep hunger. It does not invite others to share a banquet. It is not neighborly, but is cut off, divided from neighbor and God. It is indeed foolish. F. Scott Fitzgerald gave America its glimpse into the existential soullessness of the suddenly and hugely wealthy. The fool in today's parable forfeits his psyche, his soul, immediately upon giving his life to orgiastic living and thoughtless hoarding. He has failed the test of wealth. To my mind, it is not the mass of us who fulfilled Fitzgerald's pessimistic historical fate. Rather, it is the people he profiles that are on the wrong side of history. Those soulless predators of others' livelihoods devoted to grasping wealth. Those who continually, in Fitzgerald's quote, run faster, stretch out their arms farther, so they beat on boats against the current, borne ceaselessly into the past. It is God in judgment who makes this tragic metaphor real. God takes our souls if we are complicit in this greedy grasping. 
our complicity with grasping the common fruit and reign of the earth while claiming it all as our personal ownership, which is the dominant neoliberal economic paradigm of today, is truly on the wrong side of history. It will be beaten back ceaselessly into the oblivious past where the god of death resides. But for those who choose life and sharing, the blessed saints are accorded a place in the immortal memory and future home of the living God. May it be so for you and me. Amen. <laughs>